Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello everybody, welcome to this week's episode. On this episode, I'd like to welcome Flo McSweeney. Flo McSweeney was born in December 1960 in Dublin, Ireland. She is a musician, actress and presenter known for TV shows such as Megamix, No Frontiers, Separation Anxiety and Gareth and Bev. She has sang with Moving Hearts and has released her own solo material in the last few years. She has two children, me and Luke, with husband, actor, comedian, writer, Barry Murphy. Okay, welcome to the show, Flo. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Greetings from a, a grey Ireland, grey Dublin. <laughs> well, you've had some nice weather over the last few weeks, though, haven't you? We have. We had, I mean, like everybody went mad with excitement. Um, but we had about, I suppose, about 10 days of really tropical weather, like really warm at night, everyone sleeping with the windows wide open. I personally found it too hot. I can't cope with too much heat, but uh, I had a wonderful swim with my sister down at Kalani Beach at nine o'clock one evening, and that was amazing. Just to be, to be able to do that and kind of had to pinch yourself and think this is Ireland, so it was lovely. But for me, twenty to twenty-two degrees—that's warm enough. So I wouldn't last in Spain very long. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, just as you mentioned about the weather and the different, you know, climates. It's because when I was in Madrid there, um, you know, in summer, it's crazy warm. I mean, it's 40, it's 44 degrees sometimes. And the thing about it is that it's very dry heat. So if you're in the shade, it's not as bad. But now I've moved to Alicante and in Alicante, it's humid. So at night, you're like sweating, you have the fan on. It's like being in Cuba. (laughs) Maybe not as bad, but it's a bit like that. So it's taken me a little bit of time to get used to it. You know, you're just the difference. But it does remind me of being at home in Ireland when you get that very humid, heavy weather when it's warm. You know, that kind of similar by the coast. We do. And, and it was we had quite a lot of rain yesterday. And I went outside yesterday evening and it was that lovely. I love that summer's evening when you can smell, you can smell the soil from the heat and the rain. And that's just... That's a that's a real Irish summer smell. And so so like for you at the moment, obviously, with, you know, all of the restrictions over the last nearly two years now, has have a lot of things stopped for you at the moment? Are you kind of uh, staying in the house a lot or how is it? Um, I, I'm double vaccinated now. And um, so I am a little bit more. um I wouldn't say kind of like easy about where I go, but I am going out more. Um, I went to lunch on Sunday and that was my first time in a restaurant in a year and a half, in 18 months. Um, So, but I mean, the things that have stopped are obviously music. I mean, both my husband and I have always worked in this industry and, you know, March 2020 within 10 days, less than 10 days a week, every little bit, every gig that we had, everything was just gone. And, you know, I can see through Arts Council grants and, you know, there are venues that I would have played in that are sort of 
you know, opening up again or, you know, doing gigs and they've got grants from the Arts Council and they're filming bands and filming different groups in there. But um, it hasn't, that work hasn't trickled down uh, to me. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there are so many musicians here, everybody kind of looking for the same gig. So it's hard and I don't expect, I, I think it would be this time next year before, you know, we get back to normality in the music industry. And of course, Electric Picnic was just cancelled. Well, it wasn't granted its license. I was just going to say that to you because it's kind of a little bit of, you know, double standards and stuff when you see the GAA, you know, knock, knocking Gaelic football or GAA. But it's crazy when you have these double standards for horse race and GAA, different things. And then when you look at the arts, they have this kind of lockdown still going. And how can 40 or 50,000 people go to Croke Park for a football match? But for example, they can't do it for a concert. Exactly. Which you could have Gareth Brooks there or something else, but they say, no, no, because it's music, no. I know. I I, I think, I, I mean, I could be wrong because I don't have an in, but I think that maybe the organisers, when they were applying for the electric picnic licence and they had expected that they would have 70,000 over the three or four days. I mean, obviously that's not realistic, but they, I, I assume that they probably thought that the council would come back with, no, well, you can have 30,000. So whether or not they will apply again or try and push for 30,000, there's no reason why, you know, it can't go ahead at a smaller capacity, you know, and just make it a smaller, a smaller festival. Uh, It's sad and it's very difficult because there are so many people that this affects. It's not just the musicians, it's all the tech crew, it's all the people. There are so many people that work in the arts industry that aren't, front of house on stage you know it's it and and it's sad to hear of musicians um having to look at possibly look at other careers and people are and and that you said it there other careers because especially for you know a lot of musicians who are you know middle-aged in their 40s and 50s i mean it's very hard to change career and if you're a gigging musician you know if you're doing weddings or cover bands or you know, doing theatre as an actor and you're just like not famous and not earning the big bucks, but earning a living and surviving. And then all of a sudden that's taken away. And of course they give you the pop, but that's just a means to an end. You know, you're, you're, it's, you're surviving, but you can't really better yourself. And and I think for a lot of musicians and things, actors and people like that, they're kind of have been in limbo for the last two years, no? Absolutely. And, 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 the fact that you mention people like it's like the jobbing musician and there are thousands of them in Ireland who work in wedding bands. I know some uh, musicians who work in two or three different bands and they make a, a reasonable living and they are the ones not considered. So I do feel that, you know, the Minister for Arts, um, when they give the Arts Council, give X amount of money, it goes to the same people. It's they're not looking at the, the jobbing musicians, the ones who literally go out at the weekend and work Friday, Saturday, Sundays, um, they're the ones that, to me, who are most affected. You know, the famous ones and the successful ones will always survive because they'll come back. But it's um, it's it's for those people on the on the ground, as it were. It's it's so difficult. Yeah, because you know, the thing about obviously, if you if you were very successful before and you were an actor and you were getting paid big money for movies, you have like a nest egg maybe, or you have something to fall back on. So even if it was five years of a lockdown, you, you maybe you have enough in the bank. 
But, you know, for the majority of people, they don't have that privilege where they're living either week to week or month to month. And, you know, they might have some savings, but that goes very quickly when you're when you don't have work. Yeah. And also, especially, you know, for you mentioned like people early older musicians and um, hands up, I'm one of those, you know, any money that you have saved, you kind of you sort of think, well, that's towards when I, you know, a little bit down the line when I, when I retire, as it were, and and that's gone, you know, because we yes. we've been living off we've been living off what we've put away, which isn't a huge amount, but um, so you know, so it's 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 not just the immediate future and the getting back to work; it's the growing old phase that that that's the the part that's scary. The future feels a lot more uncertain, and it's very hard horrible to go to go forward into your future with that uncertainty when you've reached a certain age yeah well you know the thing about it is isn't it that if you if you put money away in the bank whether it's one thousand ten thousand or a hundred thousand and you say okay that's going to be for either you know that flat I wanted to buy in in Greece or it's going to be for you know my pension or it's going to be for any whatever you planned it for it's always a shame when something else comes along that you know some kind of surgery or something maybe you have to pay out for uh, unknown and it comes to you and then you have to spend that money it's always a shame but it's it's a worse shame when that's your retirement money and you're having to live off that now and you you're watching you dwindling away yeah absolutely and um, uh, that money now when you are laughing when you're saying for that flat i'd like to buy in greece it's more for that box more for that box of cornflakes i'd like to buy that's what the money is there's no flat money put away <laughs> no there's there's two ends of the scale there's the people who can who are worried about not getting the flat in greece and the other people who are not are looking at which brand of cornflakes to buy yeah, exactly. That's the brand. That's the category I'd be in. The cornflakes one. I might be able to maybe crunchy nut cornflakes. Maybe that's crunchy nut. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that that's the thing, and um, it's it's funny because we've come down to that now in the world where you know hopefully there won't be shortages in the future, but there could be, and. But now when you go in and you're kind of thinking, OK, how much money I have to spend and so on. And you're looking at the brands and the differences in the prices. And, you know, I see it so much. Even in Spain here, you see people come in with nice cars, but they have the phone out and they have the calculator and they're they're totting up every price because they know what their budget is to spend and they know they can't go over it. And I mean, in the past, people might not have done that because they'd be like, oh, well, you know, we, we can. We can live on that or whatever. But now people really have to watch the pennies because you don't know what's coming in the next few months or years. No, we really don't. And and with the virus as well, I, I sort of, I mean, it's wonderful. I, am, I don't know what it's like in Spain, but over 70% of the population here have been vaccinated. And even though our numbers are at, I think yesterday they were about 1,400, which is high. And the hospital and the ICU rate is staying the same and is low enough so it's showing that the vaccine is working but we don't we really don't know i mean you know i would get the flu jab every year but i have to get it every year so i am assuming that we are all going to have to have booster jabs and 
there will very likely be other variants. So we don't know how long we're going to have to live with this for and how and ultimately how effective the vaccines are going to be. That really is time is going to tell that. So, And I always think when you're heading into winter, winter is just different. Um, I have a, a, I have two kids. I have a 24-year-old and a 19-year-old. And my 19-year-old is doing music and French in UCD. And she spent her first year in her room doing her, her lectures from her room. And, and I'm hoping that she will go to college in September. But what worries me is, hey, I, you know, these are, the I suppose, the little things. But because they've been so kind of uh, wrapped in cotton wool and being at home, that when they actually go to co- to college, they're going to pick up every virus going. Um, and you just, you'll wonder, one will wonder the effectiveness of the, of the vaccine when, you know, when the kids go back to school and when winter comes. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. I was saying it to a few people over the last few months that, you know, however hard it is on, you know, certain age groups with the with the lockdown and restrictions, you know, there are some people in who are in their middle ages and, you know, they're middle aged and they, they it's kind of semi-retirement. They're thinking, I don't know, will I go back to work or what will happen? But the hard part is for the younger people who are thinking, OK, I have to study from home and maybe they're not getting the chance to travel. So it's quite tough on them. And I mean, they can't even have, you know, the same type of parties a lot of the time. I know it's eased a little bit, but it was kind of sad. I remember there a few months ago, my nephew having his 21st and I was laughing. I was saying to him, wow, I said, you didn't think you'd have your 21st sitting around eating cookies and biscuits with your mom watching the TV, you know. So... Things have changed in the last while as regards how they can celebrate. You know, I think for young people, it's a tragedy. I think it's a tragedy for, I really do feel so sorry for them because particularly, say, college-going kids and they're like my daughter in her first year, that's when you meet your people. That's when you find your group that you might have for life. And her degree is only a three-year degree. So she's going into year two and she hasn't met one single person that she's doing a course with. So her her friend group is quite small from school. And um, I think that's really difficult. That's tough. That is hard. Uh, it is hard. Like you said there, if you're going into your second year and you haven't met anybody, that's really strange, isn't it? And isn't it? It doesn't, so give, it doesn't give people confidence because you get confidence from meeting people and, you know, discovering who you are and who you want to be. But obviously, if you're not meeting those people, you're in your own world a lot of the time, aren't you? Oh, completely. Um, and I mean, we've been lucky with my daughter because she is really disciplined and she was there at her desk every morning doing her lectures live and you know she got through it and she did kind of if you know have some group chats with people on her course that she's spoken to so you know but she's dying to get to college so I just I'm keeping everything crossed that that things will go okay and that they will you know, we'd be able to stay on top of this virus and that the vaccinations will ultimately work and that people can just get back to living their lives. Hopefully, hopefully that will, you know, for her sake and everybody else's sake too. So listen, Flo, let's, uh, we'll go back in time a little bit. So we'll uh, tell us, uh, you were born in Dublin, yes? I was actually born in Cork. Oh, uh, were you? Uh, I was, yeah. My parents, my father, my father is from Bantry um, and my mother is from Glanmire. My father is actually Terence McSweeney, named after the Lord Mayor who died on hunger strike. Um, my 
my father was quite my father was like Bantry was at that time it was like it may as well have been Dublin to Cork. Um he was born in nineteen twenty-four, he's no longer with us, but he had two siblings and his mother died in childbirth when he was three. So he was sent to Cork to an aunt and uncle who had no children and they ran a little kind of like it was like a nursing home called Glenvera, it's still there. And and so he only saw his father twice a year, but he was very lucky because, I mean, he came from kind of poverty. Um, my grandfather was a small farmer. So because his aunt and uncle had no children, they poured everything, all their love and their money into my dad. And they sent him to a private school and he was educated. And then my mother is one of nine children. Um, uh, she died three years ago. She was the last surviving member of her family she lived to be 93 so we moved my father was in the clothing industry and we moved to Dublin when I was three to a place called Cabinteely so yeah so I consider myself Dublin um, but really my roots my roots are firmly entrenched in Cork and all my relatives are there I spent a lot of time as a child in Cork I used to come back with the accent after a few weeks oh yeah yeah it's a great mixture, isn't it? The Dublin accent and the Cork accent. Yeah. Well, my mother my mother had quite a generic accent, I thought, when we were growing up. But when she would get irate or annoyed, she would go completely Cork. So we'd know when she was on the warpath because the accent would, would come out. <laughs> for sure. And so what was life growing up in Cabin Teeley for you like? What was this? Were you a quiet child? Yeah, I am. I, I, I was um, easily distracted. I, I, my, I'm a twin. I have a twin brother, uh, Patrick, and we are the youngest of five. So there's nine years between um, us and our eldest sibling. And we went to um, lived in a place called Shrewsbury Lawn, and behind, right behind the wall of our back garden, was the Ursuline Convent in Cabinteely, which later became Cabinteely Community School. So I went there. I was not at all academic. Um, when I look back on it, I think I was easily given up on. I was brutal at maths, really good at English. I loved English, but from a very young age, I loved singing and dancing and music and musicals and everything. I couldn't stay still. But when it came to actually doing work, I would sit in a classroom and stare out the window. I was known as a dreamer. I, my, um, we uh, sold my mother's house a couple of years ago and um, we found in the attic all my school reports and they were all the same from sort of age five to age 18. You know, if, 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 if Florence took her head out of the clouds she could do very well but I my head were always firm firmly in the clouds still are that's really interesting isn't it because when you look back at you know people who went on to work in the arts and in different types of traditional cultural jobs you know you kind of you you think to yourself when they were in school the teachers would say oh they're dreamers daydreamers you know, they have to get their feet back on the ground. You know, like you said, your head is in the clouds and all of those things. But for teachers, it's quite hard to deal. Now it's a little easier, but it's quite hard to deal with because maybe the teacher can't see what they're dreaming about. And if the child doesn't speak about it, they're like trying to get them back to a place where they can teach them. But they're maybe thinking of stardom or being in the Olympics or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I never thought of of 
you know, this whole idea of, and the way kids are nowadays of wanting to be famous. I never, that was never in my head. It was just, I just, I just found I had no interest in academia. I mean, in a maths class, good luck. I was gone. My head was gone. I always engaged when it came to English and history. I loved literature. I loved Shakespeare. I loved history. Um, but every other subject, sorry, that's my phone ringing in the background, right. which will be answered by my husband upstairs. Don't let him fall down the stairs now trying to answer. No, no, he asked one upstairs and I said to him, would you please ask, would you answer it? Okay. Um, and, um, so, uh, so, you know, so I was, uh, yeah, I was a, I was a, a daydreamer. I just, I was fidgety. I didn't, I, it doesn't suit every child to sit in a, in a room, um, for eight hours being talked at. And it didn't, it really didn't suit me. That's why when I look at my daughter, I think, where does she get her discipline, her own self-discipline from? And she does. She's an extraordinary amount of um of discipline but it's funny because nowadays if you were you know artistic it's it's cherished and it's encouraged in a lot of schools whereas back in the you know i was in school in the late 60s or 70s i left school in 1979 but you know it was it was it was like your creativity was never nurtured never it was pushed aside so so i always felt kind of lesser than when I was when I was in school, because I wasn't, I felt oh, I'm not very bright. Whereas I was hugely bright, and um, I'd like to think are reasonably articulate. But that my gifts weren't treated as gifts; they were treated as as like they were nothing. You know, you just that's all nonsense, and that's that. It is, but you know, I think even in in the majority of schools nowadays, they know how to deal with it better, and obviously being an artist in whatever kind of area you're in is is looked on, you know, in a more favorable light than it used to be. But there is that still that kind of mentality, even amongst parents and amongst teachers, where uh, yeah, yeah, you could be a star, but you're going to have to work really hard and it, maybe it's not worth it. And, you know, just focus on, on the ground level stuff and get the basics and then do that. So, that's great in one way, but it also does kill the dream a little bit because, you know, it's like all the famous people in the world, somebody told them, oh, you can't do that or you won't be able to do that. But a lot of the time they had to struggle on and, you know, and, and that's the way life is. There's always going to be someone that's going to try to bring you back down, not always in a negative way, but in a more realistic way, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to admit, I'm probably a little guilty of it myself as a as an adult with my own children, because, you know, I, I remember the struggles I had and that, you know, arriving at the age that I'm at and still a certain level of uncertainty. So there's a part of me that would like my kids to have stability, the kind of stability that I never had. So I suppose there is always someone, even your mother, um, uh, who's a singer to give you a reality check but you know my daughter would be very I mean she's studying music in UCD um but she talks about teaching and she'd like to teach music at secondary school level and then have long summer holidays and be in a band and I thought oh I wish I was that together at that age to think like that just looking at your family right now you have uh, me and Luke you have two children is it that's right, yeah. Luke is 24 and uh, Mia is 19. One of them is there or are they both away? 
they're both they're both here um you know lockdown my my son had just finished a degree when the first lockdown happened and he was working part-time in a restaurant his kind of big interests are sort of film editing and that's what he would like to do but it that's you know it's like his life has been put on hold for the last couple of years so you know i think he has to kind of look now and decide whether he whether he will go away for a couple of years and travel um I mean, I'm a big believer in like when you're in your 20s, go travel, live your life, have fun and uh, and then, you know, come back and see, you know, he might go back to further education. He hasn't really decided yet, whereas my daughter is, as I said, in, you know, UCD. So she's got another couple of years to go. I think she her plan is then to do a master's in music education. So that's her plan. Things change, of course, could all change. She might decide she's going to run away and join the circus, which is what I did at 19. I went off with a, um, a dance troupe, when I, a dance company, when I was, when I think of it, I was 19. And I had, I'd finished school, scraped through school and didn't even really scrape. Um, and I said to my, I joined a band when I was 17. And I said to my mother that she made me promise I could be in a band if I promised to do a secretarial course. And that was a thing for a lot of young women to do in the in the early 80s. Um, so I did a secretarial course on, in a little school on char- just over Charlemont Bridge. And I had to learn typing, which I was brutal at, and shorthand, which I was even more brutal at. And I, with, with shorthand, I used to make up my own and it looked great on the page, but I couldn't read it back. So I was never going to be somebody's secretary. So then I got a job while I was doing the secretarial course in over the bridge in McConnell's advertising agency. The building isn't even there anymore. But they were the biggest ad agency in the 70s and 80s in Dublin. And I was a receptionist. And I think I left my secretary course early and went to work in McConnell's full time. And while I was there, I saw an ad in a paper where my old dance teacher was holding auditions for a dance company that were going to Germany and Italy. And I rang her and she said, um, I said, I'm not interested in, I'm not good enough to be in the dance company, but I'd love to come and do a class. So I did the class and at the end of the class, she offered me the job and my parents were away in Cork for 10 days. And when they came back, I told them that I was, I'd given up my job and I was joining a dance troupe that was going to Germany and Italy. So I may as well have told my mother I was joining the circus. Uh, and there was nothing they could do about it or talk me out of it. And I was only 19. And I think in some ways, because of my mother's lack of life experience in the way that me now as a mother I've been I've seen everything so my daughter couldn't pull the wool over my eyes about anything and if she told me she was joining a dance troupe now I would block the door with my body um so my mother had no idea what kind of thing I was getting into and I mean it was a fairly I was away for about a year and a half and it was wild mad and utterly mental the whole the whole thing but anyway, I came back very grown up that's for sure I saw a lot I think in that kind of scenario you know when you run away with the circus or don't join a dance troupe you're exposed to a whole new world good and bad I mean hopefully all pretty good but but you do learn a lot and I'm sure when you came back to your mother you were a different person I was, I, I, I was, and in a good way. I mean, you know, we got into some, a few sort of scrapes and some of the places we worked in um, were dubious kind of clubs. 
with uh, dubious, dodgy owners and the like and dubious clientele. And <clears throat> so, yeah, you have to grow up very fast to take, learn to take care of yourself, which I did. And so I came back and I wanted normality when I came back. I just thought, you know, it was sort of nearly two years of, of you know, traveling Germany and Italy. So when I came back, I joined, um, did not, I was going to say another dance troupe. No, I didn't. I, I, uh, I took a job in a hairdresser, pizzazz hair design, which was in the Paris Court Town Centre. And as a receptionist, I wasn't a hairdresser. And I was there for about a year and a half. And while I was there, I, I got seriously into music and I joined bands. And I was in a band called Toy With Rhythm and we won a competition that was run by Maxell Tapes. So that gives you an idea okay. of, of how old it was. And um, and I think about 2,000 bands entered. There were that many bands, or maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe it wasn't, it was probably 200. But, you know, every, every time I tell the story, I add another zero. There were 200,000 <laughs> bands entered. Um, and... Um, uh, and we won. And our prize was that we had uh, a single released. I, I can't remember the name of the label, but it was recorded in Windmill Lane with Bill Whelan uh, of Riverdance fame as the producer. And that was when I first met Bill Whelan. And then I ended in a long kind of working relationship with Bill over the years. Um, I Throughout the 80s, I, I, I'd say I sang on every every band that Bill Whelan produced, I would do backing vocals. So. But I was still working in a hairdresser at the time and they were very tolerant because we used to do, we were gigging and I'd be gigging on a Friday night, have a few beers afterwards. We'd end up in Susie Street down on Leeson Street and um, I'd forget to come into work the next day. I'd get a call at 11 o'clock. You know, the salon has been open since nine. They were really tolerant because I would have fired my ass. That's for sure. So, um, and then I think when we won the competition, I thought we all thought naively this was the, you know, the entry into the big time. And um, and I left my job. That was the last proper job that I ever had, apart from television um, presenting. Yeah. yeah, if you call television a proper job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, as I call it, my proper clocking in job, you know, um, uh, that sort of um yeah. So, um, and it was great. And, um, and they were very good to me in Pizzazz. They really were. They were, they were so good to me. It's funny that name Pizzazz. I remember around the country, you'd see like, I saw other hairdressers, Pizzazz. And I used to always laugh at this, like, you know, you, you'd imagine the old ladies go in for the blue rinse or, you know, the women go in for the highlight, highlights and they're like, Pizzazz, it's done. Perfect. And now you look like Pamela Anderson or whoever, you know. I do, yeah. But uh, the reality is you're waiting for a long time. and <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, and I used to be, um, when I worked in Pizzazz, I used to be a willing guinea pig. Um, I remember, like, working. And my parents used to dread Mondays because I'd go into work on a Monday when it would be really quiet in the salon. So one of the owners uh, was colorist, and he'd go, you know, do you fancy going blonde today, Flo? And you know, dark brown hair. And um, I, I think in a day, I went from sort of, you know, collar length brown hair to by the evening, it wasn't blonde. It was the color. It took about five days to do. It was the color of pigmentation of kind of like pig skin. It was it had a sort of pinkish wow. hue. And um, and it was breaking off. And I mean, oh my god! When I think of what I used to do to my hair, and cropped, and I cropped it. And then I wore it short then for the next 40 years, pretty much 30 years. 
Yeah, because I used to think, I remember seeing you on the television, obviously, in your TV shows, Mega Mix and some of these shows and everything. But I always thought you had this kind of like Blondie or Toya Wilcox kind of style, like your hair yes. and everything. That yeah, I and and it's funny. It's 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 so. At, at the time, there weren't many people walking around with you know really cropped, spiky hair, and my hair was white. I mean, it's white now for a different reason, um, but it it like bleached off my head. And I remember watching Top of the Pops one night and seeing the Arrhythmics and Annie Lennox and that first single, Sweet Dreams, and she was in the the man's pinstripe suit and she was walking through a field of cows. And I remember seeing her and thinking, oh, shit, because that was my look. In my head, that was my look, a sort of slightly androgynous, um, you know, a masculine but yet feminine look. Annie Lennox basically had the look that, as far as I was concerned, I had, and she stole it from me. Wow, wow. Yeah, because I was going to say, like that time, you know, when you said you came back from the dance with the touring around Italy and Germany, what kind of like did, did you get into a certain type of music then that made you want to be a singer? What was the kind of bands or artists that influenced you? Um, well, one of the things that happened when I was in Germany, I always think this sounds like a movie script. In one of the, the clubs that we worked in, there was we were in a place called Karlsruhe, and we worked in, in a in, in a club called the, the Rheingold, which is probably a bit like the Sugar Club or one of those sort of you know it had all these beautiful big leather boots, semicircular boots, and. So there was a show um, two uh, twice a night, and they had the the nightclub singer who was called Ralph Bunchkin, and they had the girl singer, great name, who a uh, great name, and Ralph was this, and um, I mean he was the kind of permatanned, um, sort of long dark hair, um, you know, schmoozy, slightly slimy cabaret singer. And then there was his female equivalent, which changed. But at the time, there was a, a Filipino girl called Between. And she. so they had their backing tracks. And it was actually hilarious because Between's English was terrible. So she used to sing everything phonetically. So I, we'd all have great crack at listening to her sing. But anyway, she got laryngitis and she was out for a whole week. And the man who owned the club was called Ziggy Borscht. And uh, he was like, I have a new singer. And then I said, I'll do it. And at that point I had, you know, I had been in my first band at 17. So I used her backing tracks and then somebody gave me a long dress. So in between our sets as the dance troupe, I went out and did her stuff. And it was all, um, you know, Barbara Streisand's um, I Am a Woman in Love, but sung in German. Ich, ich bin die Frau in der Liebt. And, which doesn't sound quite as romantic and um, sister singers in German. You know, what really strikes me is that uh, the poster outside, it would say between, uh, flow between yeah. Ralph Munchkin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so that's, I mean, I suppose that was, I got a taste. And I mean, I'd had a taste of singing before. Singing was always my first love, but I tended to be a kid who was, my head was so easily turned. So when, when I was asked, did I want to be in a dance trip? I said, yes. And then, you know, I got up and sang instead of between. And then I came home and I joined, because I joined a band because I was asked. Um, I never had much of a game plan, but, uh, 
when I came back, I do remember the sort of, I mean, I was listening to the music of the day when I loved, um, I loved Talking Heads. I loved Japan. I loved Grace Jones, um, sort of slave to the rhythm, that sort of uh, period. But I loved soul. I loved blues. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was through Bill Whelan doing an album, one of Freddie White's albums. And, uh, um, and I thought he was amazing. I thought Freddie White was amazing. So there was a lot of great Irish music that I, that I loved as well. But I loved, um, I loved rock. I loved everything. I was, and I'm still like that. I like to consider that my ears are open to all kinds of music. Yes. And let, let's talk about obviously some of the groups, you know, Les Enfants, Moving Hearts, Toy with Rhythm and stuff. So, so with, with, with Les Enfants, you were with them for a while, but, but then you probably saw this is not my thing or I'm not into this or what was that decision? It was, um, I was in Toy with Rhythm first and we were sort of, it's not that, it's a shame really because Ed Dara was the sort of main songwriter in Toy with Rhythm and Ed wrote great, great pop songs and she, she and I wrote some songs together, but I would have considered her the songwriting force in the band. And we'd been to, we were together a long enough time, like maybe two years, and which was two years is a lot when you're in your early twenties. And uh, one of the guys in the band left, and things kind of was were sort of beginning to fall apart a little bit. And then I was, well, I suppose there was a little bit of a buzz about me, um, and so Les Enfants approached me and asked me to join the band. So when I look back at it now, I mean there was the force of nature that was Derek Herbert, who was the main singer. And I don't think I should have joined a band where, you know, there was two of us, but they very quickly after I joined them, they got a management deal and they got a big record deal with an English company. And we went over to London uh, to negotiate this deal. And they were all intent on signing on the dotted line. And I was still like, I'm not sure because I'm not sure if I still want to stay in Les Enfants or I would have been happy to do one album with them, but I didn't want to sign anything. Um, so I think I walked out and I got the boat. I got a, uh, I got a bus to Hollyhead and I got the boat home. And by the time I arrived back in Dublin Port, um, the band were there to meet me. They had signed all the deals and had flown home. And they were basically there sort of with, with contracts. And, uh, and I'm just going, I'm sorry, guys. So, so I left. Okay. Okay. And that was my, my short time with, with, with Les Enfants. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, though? Because when you look at those kind of decisions and, you know, some people say, oh, you're mad, you should have done that. But, you know, things don't always turn out the way they imagine or you imagine. But you have to go with how you're feeling at that moment and, you know, and then decide later if it was the wrong or right decision. I mean, it, 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 well, I know it was the right decision, but I was a little bit all over the place. I didn't. I don't think I really discovered until I hit my 40s who I was musically or what I wanted to do musically. You know, it was just, it was, it was, there was so much going on in my early 20s and I was getting, you know, offers of all sorts of different kinds of work. It was just, and of course you think that's going to last forever, which it doesn't. But, you know, I was, it, it was just with Les Enfants, I just thought I'm not ready to sign like to, to just to hang my hat up with this band and be a part of this band and sign a deal that might tie me up for years. So I think it was the right thing for me then at that point. And, and also something you mentioned there, 
when you have that kind of front person in the band and you're there as well, sometimes there's that kind of competitiveness between the singers. And sometimes you can be in a band and you say, well, we don't need two front singers or the chemistry isn't as good between us. So maybe somebody goes, I'm going to step aside because I can't see it working. Well, funnily enough, with, with Les Enfants, um, you know, I think Derek and I had a great chemistry on stage. And I remember, um, I think his name, what was his name? Oh, he, Joe Breen. He used to write with the Irish Times. He used to write the music reviews. And I remember he once wrote of a gig that um, I did with Les Enfants in Trinity College. And he said that Derek... Uh, Herbert and Flo McSweeney had the kind of onstage chemistry that would make a bishop kick a hole through a stained glass window. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of one of those weird quotes <laughs> that I've always remembered. I can't remember my own name sometimes or what I had for breakfast, but I remember that. Yeah, that's really good. Well, that was good. Yeah, I suppose, you know, like, you know, things happen for a reason and you just move on, you know. So when you and then obviously Moving Hearts, you know, started and there was a lot of members and everything. But tell us about then when you you came into Moving Hearts and how it happened and the whole process. Well, before I joined Moving Hearts, I had and how I met Moving Hearts was through Bill Whelan. Again, I was doing a session with Bill and I remember we were uh, doing an album. Was it an album or three or four singles with the Sligo band, Those Nervous Animals? And I was doing backing vocals on the session. And Owen O'Neill, the bass player with Moving Hearts, was working on that session. And I think Mick Hanley had just left so I did the session I had a great chat with Owen we got on really well and then I went to South America uh, to sing in a song contest basically with the song written by Brendan Graham he of You Raise Me Up fame and um, I love gorgeous man and so the two of us went to South America we were there for 10 days and um, and I, when I came back I um, got a phone call from I don't know whichever member it was of Moving Hearts asking me, would I be interested in coming down to rehearsal and going from there? So like me being the way I was then was, yeah, okay. So, so I ended up joining Moving Hearts, which when I look back now, I mean, it was a wonderful experience and I was thrust straight into, I think one of the first gigs we did was a little mini tour with Van Morrison culminating in uh, finishing up in the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland with Freddie Hubbard, Van Morrison and Moving Hearts, which was a huge gig. And I was still only 23. Um, and I would suppose I said yes to that gig because I really didn't know a huge amount about Moving Hearts. I certainly knew little or nothing about Christy Moore or Planksty or was ever that interested or informed. And you know, I think in, in you know, in hindsight, when I look back, it was very naive of me to think that I could fill shoes as big as those. And of course, Mick Handy after after Christy, um, so it was was totally blind that I went into Moving Hearts. And when I look back on it now, and I had it, we had a wonderful time, and we went all over Europe, all over America. But we, I remember, we did a gig called the Bottom Line in New York, and down the back there was a guy for the entire gig shouting. Where's Christy? And I was absolutely devastated. And I, um, I know that there were tears in the dressing room afterwards. And uh, so I had a tough time with Moving Hearts. You know, 
it wasn't it wasn't an easy gig for me to do and I wasn't the right person to be in moving hearts I know that for sure like that's really interesting isn't it though because when you have a dynamic in the group and especially Christy is is a strong dynamic but then through no fault of their own I mean you get somebody else into the group but you're maybe not trying to replace them but you still have to fill that gap but the point is that everybody else who has been a fan of the person before sees that as filling the gap and they're like that's the wrong person well I mean what are you going to do you're not going to get another Christy Moore so you have to try and do something different but it's very hard to please the people in that way uh, yeah, I, and I think I think for for the for the members of Moving Hearts when they asked me to join, I think they, they it was a, a decision. Okay, we're going to go in a completely different direction. I think, you know, I mean, it was I've never discussed it with any of them, but I think they were probably trying to sex up their image a little bit, and maybe by getting a girl to front the band, it might get them a, that elusive record deal. Um, what I what I do remember being with them on stage some of the songs that I sang with Moving Hearts were so kind of laden with whatever political message and it was just became very musically laden but the joyous part of their music and it was pure joy was their instrumental work it was just joyous and there was a very huge gap in my mind this is just a personal thing but there was a very huge gap in their between their songs and their instrumentals um and so coming on to sing the songs, they wouldn't have been songs necessarily that I chose. And I certainly, I refused to sing Hiroshima, Nagasaki, because I thought that's Christy's song, not not singing that. But I'd sing, you know, I sang other songs, but they were all kind of, um, they were all very uh, politically laden down with politics. And uh, and so it was like that the politics was first and the music group part was second. But as a as a as a collective as a band, they were just they were extraordinary musicians, and their instrumental uh, tunes were incredible. Yes, Ireland has had and still has some great groups, trad groups. You know, Altan, Dervish, and in Duanua, all these kind of groups that are like rock, Celtic rock, Celtic folk. Yeah, you know, so. Um, the thing about it is it's hard to change a band's style, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's like if you replace, you know, into a new one, if Leslie Dowdle wasn't singing and you brought in a man singing in her place or the same with, let's say, Altan or whatever. So the, it's very hard to do. And I mean, I commend you for doing it, but it w- probably wasn't an easy decision and it wasn't an easy no. job. Um, yeah, but as I said, it was it, the the job was accepted by me purely out of naivety. I mean, I was very, I was young. I was I was twenty three, I think, when I joined Moving Hearts. So I hadn't a clue. I hadn't a clue about anything. Um, I thought I did. So you know, um, so it was kind of stupidity more than anything and naivety that 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 got brought me into Moving Hearts. And when I look back on it, yeah, it was re- it was tough and and. You know, it, it it damaged my confidence a lot because, you know, New York wasn't the only gig where I was shout where abuse was shouted at me. But there were another um you know, new group of fans and whatever people that like me in the band. But I mean, I know that if I was in the audience, I'd be thinking, What's she doing? She doesn't belong here. And I didn't belong there. But I did have some lovely moments. There was um, one of um, Moving Hearts' many farewell tours. Um, there was a gig in the Point Depot, which was televised for RTE. And everyone who'd ever worked with Moving Hearts 
I had performed with them. We were all invited to do a couple of songs. I did a song with Moya from Planet and, um, who else was there? I can't remember. It's so long ago, but it was, you know, 7,000 people in the, you know, the old, is it the three arena now or whatever, but it was the Point Depot. Yes, I think so. The Point Depot, yes. And, you know, I, I was more nervous about, uh, as Donal only was introducing me, that, that they, they were going to start booing me. And I got a lovely reception, which was really nice. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, if I had my time over again, um, I, you know, that is, I would I would not have joined Moving Hearts. Yeah. Because what happens in those situations, there are fans, you know, staunch, diehard fans who who listen, you know, to all the music before and they have their favorite members of the band. And then what happens, of course, somebody new comes in, but that new person and that new style can bring in new fans. So they don't see the big hullabaloo. They're like, oh, no, she's great. I think it's fantastic. And maybe they didn't have the same time for Christy. They might have tuned in after you joined. So you're going to get both sets of fans, but you'll always have the staunch, diehard ones who will do the shouting and saying, like, oh, bring back the other person or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and I was, you know, I was so young that I didn't have the capacity or the wherewithal to deal with the abuse that I got on a few occasions. I mean, now it would be a very different story. The 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 flow that I say here now would would wipe the floor with them. I had to have no problem doing that. But I was just um, absolutely mortified. I, when when I got shouted at, I would be mortified, and I would just want to kind of the ground to swallow me up. Um, and I felt very on stage at times, considering there was it was a big band. There was eight or nine of us on stage there were times when I felt very alone on stage yes 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 and because of your um obviously your working relationship with Bill Whelan and you know doing a lot of studio work you had a, a like a, you were singing some songs over the years for the Irish selection in Eurovision yes so was was that Yes, I, uh, that's part of my life that I'd like to forget. Uh, no, I, I sang in the National Song Contest twice. Uh, was it twice? Yes, twice. Um, to this day, I don't actually know why I ever did that because that was just so not me. Um, another one of those decisions, somebody asked me and I went, okay. Um, the first time was, um, it was a Brendan Graham song. Was it a Brendan Graham song? I can't even remember who wrote the first song. Um, but I know that I came, uh, no, it wasn't. It was a guy called John McRae. Um, and I, I came second to Linda Martin's Terminal 3, which she okay. took to Eurovision. So I think she beat me by about two points. Um, and the second time I did it was, oh, God, I was in my late 20s. I can't even remember the name of the song. It wasn't a very good song. and. Um, was it why 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 can't forever last? That's the one. Don't please don't play it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. No, it was just not a good song. And 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 also, I mean, you know, when I look at to me entering a competition as a singer, and I feel the same about X Factor and the National Song Contest, which, you know, hands up, I did twice. It's the kiss of death. Why would you want to put yourself in a position for someone to actually, for people to judge you in that way and, and you're unlikely to win? So you have failed at that job. So how do you, how do you come back from that? 
you know, as a performer. I would I would urge any young person not to enter a competition. Who's to, you know, who is to say that Simon Cowell or whomever gets to decide whether you're good or bad? Um, I just think there's so much wrong with it. I'm the same with, I mean, it's, you know, it's a national song contest and the Eurovision song contest, but it's not. And it's, it's, it's the, the performers that are the ones that are being judged ultimately. Yeah. The problem is with a lot of these kind of competitions are, you know, whoever is doing the judging and stuff, they usually have their mind made up a lot earlier than we see. But they keep the other people in for the drama and the entertainment and the whole climax of revealing the winner. So it actually makes it harder because if you're in a process where you're in a talent competition for seven or eight weeks and they know from the beginning he's going to win it or she's going to win it, it's only prolonging prolonging the disappointment for the other people. So it's all TV and entertainment, isn't it? It's all TV and entertainment and in particular in these modern day, you know, X Factor type competitions, they don't care about the individuals. Um, and, you know, it, it must be so difficult to be in the excitement of that kind of whirlwind of that whole showbiz thing. And then you get voted out one week and that's it. You're done. You're back to your bed sitting wherever. Um, I remember we were out in. Dubai a number a couple of years ago and we met Jamie Archer who was a, a an X Factor contestant and uh, he's a huge curly hair he was a great singer um I don't know where he came in the competition but he did reasonably well but he was just doing that kind of circuit sort of of just you know going around singing to backing tracks and and that X Factor thing was only going to last for as long as people would still remember him and, and, you know, the shame about show business and entertainment is that when people see you in movies or on the telly or, you know, and whatever, singing, they assume you've made it, you know, and, oh, you're going to be successful and you're going to make lots of money. But the truth is a lot of people don't. And then they have to go back to those cabaret things, to those cruise ships, to those, you know, working on the islands, wherever the islands may be. And, you know, they're just a job and musician then. And people meet them and they go oh you're the guy from x factor or whatever oh oh and they're kind of shocked because they're thinking i thought you'd be somewhere more successful and that's the shame these shows ruin they build up everything too much yeah they they actually ultimately ruin potential um and yeah it's tough and and to be honest you know as a woman now the age that i'm at i i don't think it's a, a bad thing to work in a cruise ship or be part of a show like that or to do cabaret i mean my thoughts on all on, on that end of show business has changed and the idea of what success is. I mean, for me now, success is just actually being able to get a gig and fill a room and, and, and that magical hour and a half uh, that, that, that you might have with a lovely audience in front of you and the communication between both of you. That's success for me now. It's just still being able to being able to do it. That's it. Like being a performer in whatever genre or, you know, entertainment you're in, it's about, it's not about just, you know, what people seeing you on the front of the Daily Mirror or the Sun or whatever. It's about, as you said, being able to fill a room and for people to leave that and go, that was a great show and I really enjoyed it. And that doesn't matter if that's playing the Point Depot or playing, you know, the small concert place down the road or whatever. It's just that people enjoy your show and, and you're successful in what you do, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And you see, I suppose for for every musician, performer, actor, that's all changed now. So that frustration of not being able to do it is kind of hard, really hard. Really hard, yeah. So so then obviously, you know, because you're you've got you're a triple threat, you know, you you dance, you sing, you act. So where did the whole kind of acting and TV presenting come into it then? Because I'm sure when you were, you know, playing with moving hearts and you were doing a lot of studio work, there was people saying to you, you know, oh, you should be on TV or you should be an actress. Where did that all come about? Um, well, t- TV happened because um, Billy McGrath, who was doing a producer director course out in RTE and Declan Lowney, um, they were sort of training a load of new producer directors. And I knew Billy McGrath because Billy used to do PR for bands and he did PR for Moving Hearts. And Billy asked me, would I present? He had to put together a sort of a half hour kind of um, TV interview show. So he asked me and Liam Mackey, would we host it? So this was literally his show reel or it was, it was like his end of term exam. So we went to, there was a little studio, used to be a little studio somewhere in Balls Bridge quite near the bridge. And uh, so we went out there for a day and we filmed this mock um, TV program. I think I think Billy thought I could do it because I think he thought I had a good personality and I like people and I talk to people, whether that would translate onto camera. Um, nobody knew, but anyway, we did it. And then the powers that be out in RTE, somebody high up saw the show, the his show reel. And then Billy and Declan Nowney were doing um, TV Gaga, that was the first kind of that sort of young people's late night chat show. And somebody high up saw, saw my, my part in Billy's show reel and said, what about Flo McSweeney? So they got me, they asked me, would I be into auditioning for it? So I think I spent a day in RTE in front of cameras, interviewing people, chatting. And that's how that's how that started. So the first show I did was TV Gaga. Um, so, yeah, it was another one of those. You know, somebody asking me, do you want to do this? And me going, OK, again. Um, so that's how that happened. And then from from there, I did Mega Mix with Declan Lowney. And of course, Declan went on to do Father Ted and and has done great things. And uh, and then acting sort of happened because of Bill Whelan, because we were doing the music. He was doing the music for a series of Yates plays in the Abbey Theatre. It was a festival a festival of Yates every year for five years. And they had a professor from Amory University in in uh, Washington who was a Yates scholar. And he was very much behind this. He got sponsorship from Coca-Cola to do these plays. So the first year, Bill Whelan wrote all the music and he asked me to do the vocals and we recorded them in Windmill Lane. And then I met the director, Jim, the American uh, professor, and we got on great. And the second year he cast me in it and then I was in it for every year. So I did it for five years every summer in, in the Abbey. And then while I was, was like, my timelines get mixed up, but I ended up, I mean, pretty much because of the experience I got doing that. Um, I did a few other small plays and small pieces. I loved acting. I did enjoy it. I love stage acting. I'd be crap on film. But, um, uh, and then I got my biggest part probably was playing Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Gate Theatre. And that was amazing. That was just an extraordinary experience. 
I was 33, 32, 33 when I did that. The more then that you kind of moved into TV, did you find then that it is it slowed down your singing work or were you able to do both of them hand in hand? A um, little bit of both. I sort of, the weird thing was when I was doing Mega Mix, which was purely music program, I mean, it was like sort of Ireland's Top of the Pops or a mix of Top of the Pops and the Tube. Um, we did it from Christchurch. Uh, what was it called? The Cathedral Club. And uh, so it was a big church setting and it was an amazing venue. And there were, um, we used to film on a Wednesday or Tuesday or a Wednesday. And so all the bands that were coming from various countries that were coming to the UK to do Top of the Pops would come to Dublin first and do Mega Mix. So we got... We got a lot of bands who were like just about to release a single. Um, I think I think um, Ross did their first, one of their first TV appearances was Megamix. I didn't know who they were. And um, uh, it's all these little kind of poppy bands. So when so when I was doing Megamix, there were times when I'd look at all the bands on stage and think, oh, I want to do this. But I was living, um, I was living in the UK at the time of the first series of Megamix, I was living in London and I was doing a lot of session work, singing, um, doing backing vocals for other bands and very well paid. And I was in a band, an English band called The Rest is History. So there is floating around somewhere in the ether, um, it might be even on YouTube. Um, we we actually did The Rest with The Rest is History, did Megamix, performed in it. Yeah. Which was brilliant. And and before we went on, Sean Hughes, who's no longer with us, sadly, Sean Hughes was our barman on Mega Mix. He was kind of, he was sort of in the background cleaning glasses and there was never any booze at that bar. I remember like you and, and Kevin Jarkey on it and he was, um, he'd be, Sean Hughes would be like, just like the, you know, proverbial barman cleaning the glasses with the rag yeah. and stuff. Did he have, can I, am I wrong? Did he have some speaking part in it as well, or did he talk? No. Oh, he did. No, he did. Um, um, and he didn't kind of present as such, but he did bits. He would do bits on it. And um, he was, I mean, I remember thinking he was really young. Because, you know, when you, I, I was I, my mid-20s at that point, and he was probably in his early 20s. And, you know, when you're in your 20s and there's a three or four-year age gap, you kind of think, oh, kids, <laughs> kids these days. Yeah. And uh, I remember Sean Hughes leaving after the first, um, at the end of the first series, and he said he was going to the UK to try his luck as a stand-up. And I said, oh, good luck. That's the last we see, we'd see of him. And uh, I'm sure he went on to great things. And then after uh, Sean Hughes, Paul Tylock, who's a wonderful actor and comedian, uh, Paul Tylock became the barman on the second series. But Megamix was great. It was really good fun, great fun. And Kevin Sharkey and I. Yeah. How many episodes? We did, only did two. We we um there might have been there might have there were two series. There might have been twelve in each one, or there may only have been six. I actually cannot remember how many we did. But they seemed it seemed to last. We used to we used to do it in the winter, and I because I remember when we finished the first season. Uh, Kevin Sharkey and I went to Lanzarote for two weeks and I thought it was the most exotic thing to go on a sun holiday in February because it probably was. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's funny, isn't it? Because 
You know, it's like now you're thinking, oh, I'm going to Dubai or somewhere really exotic. And people are like, Lanzarote, I've been there a million times, you know. I know, when yeah. The yeah, first people... time going is always amazing. Oh, yeah. And people are like that now about places like Dubai. It's like Dubai is like, you know, um, uh, the world's got smaller and it's easier to travel. But I mean, this is kind of early, early mid 80s, you know, 83, 84. So, you know, you didn't travel to the same the same degree but um yeah I remember we had two weeks in February and it was hot in Lanzarote with Kevin and we great fun so then obviously when you were doing that did that put you in the position for no frontiers later on or how did that come about I suppose it did but I mean when I think of it it was a long time uh you know after what I do after Megamix I mean I didn't do any more TV and I was never that interested in television presenting and I don't mean that disrespectfully to those who do it um, I it wasn't my passion music singing was always my passion but I tended to get very distracted easily distracted by offers of other jobs so I never really kind of gave it a moment's thought when when Megamix finished I was grand back to music and then um, I met my husband and we had our first son and my son was about 20 months old and we were living in an apartment on Pembroke Road and my husband had gone to Edinburgh um, for the Fringe Festival for the month of August and we were going to go out for a weekend but it was going to be a long month, me on my own with a baby and uh, my husband was in a, a comedy group called Mr Trellis which was Ardlo Hanlon, Kevin Gildee and my husband Barry Murphy and so I'd say it was only a couple of days after Barry had left for Edinburgh that a call came from uh, Frontier Films and I thought they were looking for Barry and I was, you know, a baby in one arm and um, and I was getting impatient. I was going, yeah, well, you can contact him in, the, in Edinburgh. This is no reason. No, 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 we want to talk to you. And I believe that afterwards that it was Ferdy and McGanna who had suggested me to Gerald Heffernan from Frontier Films and they were looking for uh, presenters for No Frontiers. So I, I, I'm very, very lucky in that I had great support from my parents and my twin brother. And so they said, would you be free to kind of, this could have been Monday or Tuesday. It's like, would you be free on Friday to go to uh, the south of France for three days filming? And let's do one story wow. For, for No Frontiers and see how it goes, take it from there. So all I was, I didn't think beyond the three, um, the three days in France, I rang my brother and my mother and between them, they looked after my son. So I went, did the story and, you know, it's like picking up an old hat and an old coat and putting it back on. It went really well. And um, I was, I came back from there and then I was maybe a week later, I was, in a taxi with my son on the way to the airport to go to Edinburgh. And I got a call saying uh, from Frontier Films saying that the heads in RTE um, really liked me and they wanted to offer me the position of the kind of main presenter, um, which meant 12 trips a year, all kind of condensed between sort of April and October. And I remember it was maybe Friday and I was going to Edinburgh for the weekend and 10 days later, I was in Africa, in Zimbabwe. <laughs> so that's how, yeah. And that was an amazing. Yeah, because obviously, you know, when people look at shows like this and 
you know, the, the travel shows or these people who work, you know, finding houses, you know, what's that famous English one away in the sun or something. I can't remember the name. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Remember that. And so these kind of shows and they think, Oh my God, these presenters have a great life. You know, they're traveling the world and seeing these amazing things, but they're obviously you see them for the time they're on. But when you used to go on those working holidays, were they like, was it always fun or was there times that you thought this is crazy? Oh yeah. I mean, as I think I did, I can't remember whether I did three or four seasons. I think it was four. Um, by the by, the time we were doing the last season, there were big budget cuts, and um, so we had less of a crew going initially. In the first year, there would be five of us, and there'd be an assistant who was like assistant to the director, but would also kind of help me. And you would have, you know, if you were going on a long haul flight, you'd you know you'd have a good five six days away, you know, day of rest, day to recover. By the last year, the last year that I did. Um, I think Catherine Thomas had come in at that point and they were doing sort of backpacker trips with her. And it was literally Catherine and then a camera person who would do sound as well. So, of course, that was, you know, great for their budget. But um, by the end, it was literally just a director, camera, sound and me. And I remember we went to Australia, to Sydney, and I flew out on a Wednesday and the following and arrived at five o'clock in the morning and I thought not working till the following morning I'll get a you know good rest sleep I think I slept for two hours wandering around Sydney Harbour and the next morning at 8 a.m I was climbing Sydney Harbour Bridge on no sleep I looked like crap the last two series because I was so wrecked all the time so it was hard work so you didn't have I mean you know you were literally in and out so it wasn't like you two days off and you could lounge around on a beach or by a pool when you were working you were you know it was a heavy schedule usually um you know involving the local tourism office so they we'd have somebody with us and they would have a packed schedule for us so it was it was exhausting but at the same time I do look back now I remember I've said this before um you know on on other interviews but it's a moment in time that stands out flying over Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe in a helicopter where no health and safety they'd taken the door off the helicopter to accommodate our cameraman who was strapped into the back but I was still hanging on to the back of his trousers um and he was leaning out and he was filming and he was fit. There was a water, the uh, Victoria Falls waterfall beneath us. There was um, a bull elephant, female and their baby, all tail, trunk to tail, um, walking along what looked like the edge of the waterfall. And there was a rainbow beneath us. And that was in the, that was piece of films used in the opening titles for all the years that No Frontiers was there. But I remember that moment and thinking, wow, you know, Someday you'll be at home scrubbing your kitchen floor and uh, remembering this. Yes. Well, I mean, amazing moments because, you know, when, you, when you're a musician and you're touring the world or traveling the world, you get to see amazing things. But obviously on a travel show, you know, you're filming it for the audience and you're presenting and talking about it and everything. But I think, yeah, there's two sides to it. There's the side where you're really having fun, but then you have to set up the shots uh, you have to, you know, practice what you're going to say, not to mention tourists. You know, I'm sure you had some headaches with tourists around the camera and everything, no? 
Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. But, you know, you deal with that. And and, uh, and we often met, you know, in Irish tourists in the, in the strangest of places. But no, we never had any any real hassle. But uh, some wonderful moments and went and saw some incredible things. So, I mean, I know I was very lucky and very privileged to do it. And then when I had my daughter, I uh, I knew that I needed to you know, I knew I was going to have to stop, that I couldn't continue doing it. But I think at the same time, they had decided to, as well to move in a different direction. So it kind of my time with them came to an end. But I had no regrets at that stage. Yeah. And, you know, obviously um, for you at that time, you know, finishing up with it. But I had read, obviously, in some articles that, you know, it, you weren't that happy the way they did it. And unfortunately, yeah, no. that's TV. Sometimes decisions are made and people are replaced and, you know, they try to change things, but sometimes the delivery of the message can be done better, no? I totally agree. And I think as you get older, you realise, you know, everybody is replaceable, every single person, and you're not special. Um, I think there is a thing when you're younger, um, I'm sure I was probably guilty of it, where you think, you know, all these wonderful things are happening to me because, of course, they are because I'm fabulous. And, uh, you know... uh, Common sense prevails when you get older and you realize, no, nobody, you're not special. You're the same as everybody else. And there's always somebody younger snapping at your heels. Um, sometimes somebody better. I, nobody was snapping at my heels at all. I was always treated with respect by my co-workers. But the powers that be, I think, I think, I suppose what hurt me most of all was that I had gone into the, uh, the office with my three week old baby daughter to say hello to everyone. Um, maybe a week earlier and the following morning um when I got when I came home the following morning my dear John letter arrived in the post so when I visited the office everybody knew that I was getting that letter so I think a phone call after four years would have been far more respectful than the dear John letter that I got yeah sometimes isn't it when when people have that kind of relationship and that you know you think is respectful and you think you know caters to look after everyone's interests somebody makes that stupid decision oh this this will be the best way to do it or it's the easiest it's a cop-out it's like let's do it this way and we'll save ourselves but i mean you ruin relationships then don't you yeah but i think the truth of it is that there are people who don't care about ruining relationships it's on to the next person you know it's it's that i suppose there is a big difference between the hierarchy in big business and the people that work for them you know so there are people that don't treat their their uh, employees with respect they see them as replaceable and they may well be but i think one should always always treat people with respect because your own time will come you know comes to everyone for sure so around that time obviously you know things were really going well for you and you were you were doing a lot but obviously you you met barry barry murphy your your husband and both of you were involved in the arts you know barry's a comedian and he was i think at that time i think he was he doing tv at that time um but was that a was that hard at the beginning? You know, was that hard having, you know, two people in the the celebrity world, and you know, was it difficult to stay on on you know level ground with all that around you? Uh, no, no, not at all. Because neither one of us would consider ourselves celebrity. Neither one of us 
court that kind of celebrity. I may have in my early 20s, but certainly, certainly not. I, I you know, I, Barry and I would both have the same attitude. You go do your job, you come home. We live in an ordinary house in suburbia. We had, you know, two kids um, never in competition with each other. It just wasn't like that. We don't think of it like that. You know, he's he's has always seen his job as his work as his job and the, all the nonsense that goes with it he's not interested in and neither am I so so if we we're both really quite grounded people we might be a bit mad but we're grounded and um so uh, you know family life was normal and and um you know I think timing was such that when Apri match kind of took off and our kids were young. It gave him the opportunity to do what he needed to do, and what he was, you know, having great success at. And I looked after the kids. <coughs> Excuse me. So it just kind of, it just worked out. And then, you know, as someone said to me, oh, you disappeared completely and you weren't working at all. I was. I was doing voiceovers and jingles and things like that. And I did a couple of animation series where I did voice and characters. So I just wasn't doing big high profile stuff. So I had many years of just being at home and doing that kind of work. And it was great. Loved it. And that's it, yeah, because, you know, it's like ebb and flow in, in people, in especially in, in with couples who are both involved in the arts. You know, there's peaks and troughs and sometimes one person has more happening at that time or more high profile and the other person mightn't. But these can change. So, I mean, like you said, um, people might say, oh, you're not doing as much, but maybe they were looking at Barry and saying he's doing a lot, but you still had all your stuff going on in your own world. Yeah, I, and, and it was, um, I, I joined a, a voiceover agency um, kind of in my late 30s, maybe early 40s, and uh, and I got lots of work voicing commercials, and it was wonderful. It was the right kind of uh work for me to be doing at that stage I remember when my daughter was oh she was four weeks old five weeks old max and I got a call could I be in Windmill Lane Studios this was at midday can you could you be in Windmill Lane for a voiceover at two and it's fine you can bring the baby and I thought oh god I really don't know and that's her nap time and whatever and they said I said well who's it for and they said Vodafone and I said I'll be there and I went in to do that job and I was so fortunate that I had a daughter who never cried she just smiled at everyone but I remember walking into the studio and there was about seven or eight people in the control room so the more people usually the bigger the job from the agency and the client yeah. and it ended up being a vote, a Vodafone. And when I think of the amount of money they spend on their TV ads and they choose the voiceover two hours before they need her, it's mad. But it ended up being a four-year campaign for me. And it was, um, I'll do the voice. I have dropped my voice. It was, um, life's better with Vodafone. How are you? And it was the How Are You campaign. And it was four years. I remember, I remember hearing that. That's like... These ads stay in your subconscious and the voices and the they lines. They do, well. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that ended up being four years I did that job for. So had I said that day, no, I'm not coming. But when I, when I heard it was Vodafone, I thought Vodafone's a good one to get. And, and, and the weird thing is, it, unlike other things with advertising, if you get a big campaign like that and your voice is recognizable within the industry and everyone knows it's you, instead of it, yeah, 
cutting you off from doing other things, it actually leads to more. I got so much work around that time. So between sort of 40 and, and 50, I was doing loads. Now, because of my age, I get jobs like um, um, panty liners for older women <laughs> to prevent leakage. <laughs> and can, can I ask you that, actually, <laughs> to prevent leakage? Yeah. Can I ask you, the, the, do, in that, like when you're doing voiceovers, do they kind of say to you, oh, you know, well, you're this age now, your voice sounds a bit different. Completely. Or do, you, do you say, oh, no, but I can speak like a 40-year-old. That's that's what I think. But I have been told, no, you're now in the... I was, at one point, I was wondering why I wasn't getting as much work as I used to. And I went onto the, um, onto the webpage of the agency and I saw, you know, age 50 to 60 or something. something and I thought, oh, for God's sake. Whereas I feel, I mean... My singing voice has improved with age. I'm, on my album, I don't think you could tell my age from listening to my album, and I don't think I have. I think, I think, it's, it's. I suppose it's when I'm listening to twenty-four-year-olds selling fifty-five-plus-year-olds face cream. I find that irritates me. I would prefer to hear yeah. a woman of my own age or a woman with a more mature voice. Um, but I don't think my voice has radically changed. But um, I know I can't pay 35, but I reckon I could do 45 plus. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it, though? Because there are probably people, you know, in the industry, so-called voice experts who go, no, no, that's the voice of this age and that's the voice of that age. So they're listening and they say, they maybe make the decisions and say, no, you need this younger sounding voice. And for the normal person, they might go, they sound pretty much the same. And they go, no, 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 I can tell the age. So maybe it's very technical how they make the decisions. Yeah, but, you know, they are also now using, they are using voices to me that just sound ridiculously young, selling products to older women. And I don't, I don't get that. Also, I, I do remember a moment where I heard an Irish accent doing a voiceover that sounded slightly American. You know, um, where this sort of T.Y. say continuity is no longer continuity, it's continuity. Um, and I remember the first time I heard those kind of voices on radio, I thought that's it now changed. So the accent has changed, we've become quite Americanized. Yeah. And I saw something recently where they were talking. Somebody was saying about like some of the Irish ads sometimes can be for Landis or Centra or different companies can be quite Irish. I mean, they're trying to really put the you know well come down to the and it's very they're they're like yeah. cheery chappies you know and they're really yeah. trying to put that across and they kind of exaggerated a lot. Yeah, well, yes, that's true. But what I do like is the fact that there are more regional accents used on radio and television commercials. Whereas back in the day, it's like you had to have the RTE Donnybrook Dublin 4 accent to get any kind of, you know, if you listen to ads from the 80s, the male voiceovers in particular were all very sort of, it was very much sort of almost like a gay burn type of accent, um, you know, very proper and correct. Whereas now it's, it's they're more representative of the whole country, which is the way it should be. It's funny you mentioned that because I know that on one of your voiceover shows, you, you worked with Alan Stanford, who That's used right. to be in Glen Row and everything. But I remember for years, 
all of the ads on television seemed to have Alan's Danforth voice. Um, he did, yeah. I mean, he would have had his, yeah, he would have had his time in the sun like us all. It's 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 a popularity thing, too. You know, I mean, at the moment it's Baz Ashwami. Um, he's on he's on a lot. Um, who else? Uh, I think it's Joanne McNally. She's a comedian. I'm hearing her a lot. It's yeah, it, it, that happens. I mean, my time was between 40 and 50 where I was on everything. And I was also doing jingles as well. So, you know, I had the best of both worlds. Jingles aren't as popular anymore. But back in the 80s and 90s, early 90s in particular, it was always about a jingle. So um, there was a company called Ear to Ear that wrote jingles for TV commercials. And I did all of their work. I did at one point if through... Um, an Irish producer, it was an American um, ad agency from Boston, and they had the account for CVS drugstores. And I did, um, I basically did about 30 jingles for CVS drugstores for sort of paid, uh, paid with Irish money as in sort of like Irish rates. And it was only when I was in New York about three years later and I heard the ad in the CVS drugstore and I heard my voice, I thought, oh my God, if I was living here in America and I had done that job, I could have probably retired on it. Which is why they came yes, to Dublin yes. to do it in the first place. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they came over and they were like, yeah, we get some cheaper people over yeah, here. I get it. It's what, what they do. The great thing about it is you've had a very varied career, you know, because... You know, you've been presenting, you've been singing, you've been a backing singer, you've been a lead singer, you've had a little stint in Eurovision, the, the song contest, of course, uh, you've done voiceover. So, I mean, your career has been so varied and diverse. Yeah, it has. I, I mean, you know, and there's sometimes on, on, a, on, a, on a down day where I think, oh, what have I achieved? And then, you know, on a good day, I think oh, you've done a lot. I have done a lot. Not finished yet, but... Um, no. Yeah, it has been diverse. And I think it's because I was able to be, you know, it's funny nowadays, it would be more acceptable as a performer, as an artist, that, you know, you act and you can sing and you whatever. Back in the 80s, it was a little bit, I've sometimes felt that I wasn't taken seriously uh, because um, I diverted into so many different uh, mediums, you know, but it was because I was able to do it. I felt that I was kind of good at most of the things I did, says she. <laughs> That's what you need. You need to know, you know. Um, for you now, you know, obviously, with with whatever work you have or whatever work is coming in, do you have any kind of aspirations or ambitions for the next few years, what you'd like to do, anything different? Um, I wouldn't say different. I, a big thing for me was uh, two years ago I recorded my first solo album at age 50 and um, 57 when I recorded it um, and I recorded um, I'm very proud of this album I uh, co-produced it with Fiacre Trench who's a well-known composer and string arranger he's worked with Van Morrison Paul McCartney he lives in in uh, in Dublin or in Wicklow rather and uh, and his son Rian co-produced it and engineered it and his collection of songs they weren't um original songs but a collection of some old jazz tunes but but um there's tom waits there's randy newman there's leonard cohen song um paul buchanan from the blue nile i did one of his songs and um i had um, a quartet come in from the 
RT Symphony Orchestra played on it, had a wonderful brass section. I mean, I'm very proud of that album. And it was a big thing for me to do because, I mean, I wasn't doing it with the backing of a record company. So I financed it myself, which is a big thing to do. And, you know, you're not going to make that money back. Um, Unfortunately, timing was bad that when I released it, I was unwell. And then COVID happened. So I've never really gotten to, to tour it. But I would really like to do another one another album that's my my aim brilliant that's really nice so for anybody who's watching you will find my album on all platforms all digital platforms and it's called it's Flo McSweeney picture in a frame which is the title track and it's a Tom Waits song and I sang that song at my mother's funeral so it's very special Aww. very special for me and I dedicated the album to my parents yeah, it has a lot of meaning. Well, I mean, that's really good. And I, I hope, obviously, with, you know, the way things are, that in, in the next year or two, you can get to do your new album and next album. And this time, maybe tour it, you know, and yeah. get it out there so people can listen to it. Because, you know, you have a fabulous voice and you have a great presence on stage, whether it be in front of TV or on stage in theatre. So all I want to say is, you know, Thanks for, very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure listening to your stories. It's so interesting. And, you know, there's lots of hidden gems in there and you've done great things. And all we can do is wish you the best for the future, Flo. And thank you once again. Flo McSweeney, everybody. Thank you, Simon. And to you. Best of luck to you. Okay. Thank you very much, Flo. I really enjoyed that interview. And it was a pleasure having you on the show. And thank you for telling us all about your life so far. Lots of good things to come, I'm sure. You know, it's a, you've had a very varied and interesting career. And I'm sure people will enjoy hearing about your exploits on the TV, in the recording studios and everything. So once again, we thank you. Okay, everybody, um, we look forward to seeing you on next week's show. And we just want to say to you, have a lovely weekend, have a lovely week, take care of yourself. I hope you're enjoying, you know, the holidays or whatever still. And we look forward to having you on the show next time. So look after yourself, look after the people you love and take care. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.